Heavenly Father, in this uh, moment, in the wandering that we are uh, doing in this time and space, we sense your presence. We really do. Um, and we sense it in the lives of the people around us and in the, the hands of love and compassion, uh, condolence, uh, welcome that is extended here. And I pray that we would just simply continue to be the very representatives of your amazing love and your amazing grace in this world in the midst of continued darkness, um, continued chaos. Your, your word speaks into that darkness, into that chaos, and brings forth order and beauty and purpose and meaning and community and joy and hope and justice. So may our words in, um, in, our, in our actions and everything about who we are just continue the work that you have already done and begun in this world. And may we see it come to more fruition. And I pray in your name. Amen. I need a couple volunteers. Can I get three volunteers? Uh, yeah. Oh, so you volunteer your friend. You volunteer yourself, Pam. Oh, no, that's all right. Gary, you want to you volunteer? Uh, can I get another volunteer? Uh, anybody? Uh, real quick? Uh, nobody? All right, Daniel. Beautiful. Uh, so, and Deb. Okay, beautiful. So this is what we're going to do. Uh, we're in the book of Numbers. Of, I, uh, I've entitled this particular talk, The Red Cow is Purple. Now, I need to tell you a little bit about what that is all about. Many years ago, I read a book uh, from Seth Godin. For those of you who know him, he's a management guru. He thinks about business. And he wrote a book entitled The Purple Cow. And uh, I was intrigued by it, and I wrote, uh, and I read it as part of my growing and learning. And his basic thesis is this, that uh, if you're driving down on the road and you see a cow, um, is that anything spectacular for you? And the answer is no. That's not spectacular because everybody sees cows. But what if you came across a purple cow? That, that would be amazing. That would be astounding. It's still a cow, but it's a purple cow, which means it stands out. It is different. It is uh, beyond any expectations. Uh, one of the summaries in his book is if your offering, meaning your business, your product, isn't itself remarkable, then it's invisible. Because everybody's just doing the same old thing. But in order for you to really market your product, you've got to be remarkable. And many of you in this room work for companies that do remarkable products, right? That's, what, that's how you do your business and that's how you make your money. It's you do remarkable things and it's, that's how you stand out in the midst of the crowd. Uh, today, what I'd like to share with you is that the purple cow from numbers is actually going to be a red cow. The red cow is purple or the purple cow is red, however you want to say it, something along those lines. And what we're going to do is we're going to actually read Numbers chapter 19, and I need a priest, I need a clean person, and I need an unclean person. So this is, I know... An unclean person or a clean person. No real true designation here. But here's what we have. Um, we have a cow. Um, Deb, why don't you just go out into the community? Go just sit right there for a second right here. We're going to read through this passage. And what I'd like to do is take you through this ceremony, which is one of the most mysterious, perplexing, uh, confusing, and mind-boggling ceremonies that we have in the Old Testament in the Hebrew Scriptures. I'd like you to see what's going on, and then what I'm going to attempt to do is try to share with you what is this doing in our text, and what is happening to the people of Israel through it that we can understand and that we can take away that might have tremendous significance for the life that we live here. So, Numbers 19, are we ready? Yes. So the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, this is a statute of the law that the Lord has commanded. Tell the Israelites to bring you a red heifer, bring it 
without defect. Show it in front of everybody. Is it a red heifer without defect? There's no blemish and no yoke has been laid upon it, which means it hasn't worked at all. You shall give it to the priest, Eleazar. Give it to the priest. (laughs) And it shall be taken outside the camp. Go out there. I have a table already. All of y'all. All y'all. Now, no, wait, wait. Just stay at the table. You are to take it outside the camp and slaughter it in the presence of all the people. Go, go ahead and slaughter. Go ahead and slaughter. Okay, excellent. This is always the concern of getting certain volunteers. They get into it a little much. Okay. So they slaughter it. The priest Eleazar shall take some of its blood with his finger and sprinkle it seven times towards the front of the tent of meeting. I have some red cardboard paper there that you can tear up as the blood. Sprinkle it in this direction. You are now outside the tent of meeting. Sprinkle that blood in this particular direction. Very, very nice. Then, and I have some matches there. Then the heifer shall be burned in his sight. And Daniel, you are, the, uh, you are also the designated person with the priest. So with the priest, you are to participate in this sacrificial system with him. You shall take the heifer and then burn in his sight. Its skin, its flesh, its blood, its dung shall be burned. Go ahead and burn it. Let's see if we got... Okay, very nice. So you're going to burn everything about this cow. I have, a lid. I have a lid there just in case things get a little bit out of control. I, uh, fire extinguishers over there, which I forgot until just now. The priest shall take some cedar wood... Uh, some hyssop, which I didn't get, and some crimson material, which I have the yarn there, crimson material, and throw them into the fire in which the heifer is burning. You get, oh, you're going to throw it all? Okay, all of it. All right, very nice. Um, so, okay, it says crimson material. It doesn't say some of it. Okay, very, very fine. We're being literalists here. Then the priest shall wash his clothes. Uh, wash his clothes. Oh, I forgot a pitcher of water. So pretend I meant to put some water out there. Uh, the priest shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water. And afterward, he may come into the camp. But the priest shall remain unclean until evening. So you, you, everybody's going to wash off. Then the one who burned the heifer, and that's with Daniel as well, shall wash his clothes in water and bathe his body in water. He shall remain unclean until evening. Then this is where Deborah comes back in. Someone who is clean shall gather up the ashes of the heifer and deposit them outside the camp in a clean place, and they shall be kept for the congregation of the Israelites for the water for cleansing it as a purification offering. So, okay, so the gar- great garbage clan for the clean place. Well done. Uh, very nice. All right, you guys can go ahead and come back on in. Uh, give them a big round of applause. So we have... <clears throat> Thank you very much. I will call on you in just a few moments because we're going to do another sacrifice or another ceremony piece of the ceremony there. So we have a priest. We have somebody in conjunction with the priest, and they participate in the burning of this red heifer. And then they uh, are not allowed to participate in this next step, which is to take the ashes and put them in a clean place, preferably a garbage can out there. So that's the clean place. But it's not to be done by them. It's only to be done by the clean person. Later on in this passage, uh, 
it describes what these ashes are to be used for. This shall be a, a perpetual statute for the Israelites and for the alien residing among them. Side note, footnote, asterisk. Notice the alien residing amongst them. That's usually the word foreigner or stranger. And all throughout the Old Testament texts, there are these hints and clues that there's the nation of Israel that is intermixed with people from other nations, refugees, strangers, foreigners, and they are to be given the same rights and privileges as the nation, the called nation of Israel themselves. This is a huge theme throughout our Old Testament text. Those who touch the body of a uh, those who touch the dead body of any human being shall be unclean seven days. They shall purify themselves with the water on the third day and on the seventh day, and so to be clean. Third day, seventh day. But if they do not purify themselves on the third day and on the seventh day, they will not become clean. And here's the key crux. Anybody, all, who touch a corpse, the body of a human being who has died, and do not purify themselves, defile the tabernacle, the very place of God, the house of God, Such persons shall be cut off from Israel. Since water for cleansing was not dashed on them, they remain unclean. Their uncleanness is still on them. This is the law when somebody dies in a tent. Everyone who comes into the tent and everyone who is in the tent shall be unclean seven days. And every open vessel with no cover fastened on it is unclean. Whoever in the open field touches one who has been killed by a sword, who has died naturally, human bone or grave, shall be unclean seven days for the unclean. They shall take some of the ashes of the burnt purification offering, and running water shall be added in a vessel. So if anybody is participating in the touching or the mingling in with a corpse or a dead body, this is the ritual that you're supposed to participate in. And remember, this is a ritual. This is ceremony. This is significance and meaning. The dead body symbolizes the death that happens to all of us, which is opposite of who God is and God brings life. And so the defilement is the mixing of those two. God is all about life and dead bodies and corpses are all about dead. And you want to keep those two. And the ritual is what helps to ensure that you keep those two pieces separate. And that is how we today are to distinguish what are things that are supposed to be holy and what are things that are supposed to be profane. Some of you uh, might have some special items in your home and you only bring those out for special occasions. They are not to be used at the children's table or as a dog dish because that is a separation of what those uses are. And this is where it gets a little funky in this passage. Then a clean person this will be Deb again, shall take hyssop, dip it in the water, and sprinkle it on the tent and all the furnishings and on the person who were there, the people who have been unclean because of the touching of the corpse, and on whoever touched the bone, the slain, the corpse, or the grave. The clean person shall sprinkle the unclean ones on the third day and on the seventh day, thus purifying them on the seventh day. Then they shall wash their clothes and bathe themselves in water and eat, and at evening they shall be clean." Any who are unclean but do not purify themselves, those persons shall be cut off from the assembly. Again, the symbol of separation. For they have defiled the sanctuary of the Lord. Since the water for cleansing has not been dashed on them, they are unclean. It shall be a perpetual uh, statute for them. The one who sprinkles the water for cleaning, and here's where it gets, again, funky, shall wash his clothes, and whoever touches the water for cleansing shall be unclean until evening. So Daniel and Deb, if I can have you guys back up here for just one brief moment. 
whatever the unclean person touches shall be unclean, and anyone who touches it shall be unclean until evening. Now, I forgot the picture of water out there, but generally speaking, this is what's going to happen. You're unclean. You touched a dead body. Did you have any meat? No. no? Oh, go, well, you probably touched a dead body. Did you kill a fly? Did you do anything? Yeah. Okay. So you're an unclean person. Okay. Just trying to get, work with me here. Okay. So you're an unclean person. You are not allowed to be a part of the community. You're not allowed to be a part of the sanctuary or the tent of meeting because you are now a representative of somebody who is about death. You've touched a dead body. You, however, have not touched a dead body. You are clean. You are ritually pure. You are a symbol of that essence there. Here's where this ritual gets weird. You, the clean person, Deb, are to go take the ashes in the water, okay? So we'll just, just pretend. Just mime it out for me. You, okay, don't go too far. Come sit back here. You take some of those ashes in the water, and you are to sprinkle it. This is your job as the clean person to sprinkle it on the sanctuary, the tent of meeting, and on the person. The clean person does the ritual. The unclean person receives this ritual. And what happens? The unclean person, the defiled person, has now become clean. And you are now welcome back into the community, welcome back into the sanctuary. However, what just happened to this person? They just became unclean. You now have to go purify yourself or be separated until the time of that uncleanliness is over. All right? Okay, thank you so much. Give them a big round of applause. Okay. This is weird. This is why this is a purple cow. The purification idea is huge in the Jewish mind uh, throughout the Hebrew scriptures and even still to this day. So much so that this story that we just read about the red heifer, there is an institute in Israel called the Temple Institute. They have actually started to uh, work with some real cows of a red color and this last August, a real red heifer that is rabbinically pure in the very statutes that they desire was born. It was born uh, August 28, 2018. There's all sorts of laws and discussions about how many black hairs can be on the head. And in this particular situation, not even one. So this has to be a pure red heifer. In fact, there was some commentary that suggests that is really what makes this so special, is there's a purity about the redness of the, um, of the heifer. Because red cows are all over the place, um, but what's really special is that it is pure, it's untouched, and it doesn't ever work. Symbolizing, again, symbolizing the purity of the people, of what life is supposed to be about. Now, when you go searching some ancient texts and commentaries on what is this ceremony all about. Some people absolutely call it purification. Uh, Some people call it uh, cleansiness, and it's a ritual experience. But you also run into almost every commentator from today all the way back has an explanation something like this. This statute, this commandment, has no rational explanation. I read one person that said, this particular statute is beyond human understanding. And for those of you who are of a different generation that need a little bit of a different... uh, This is... If they had emojis, this is what they would have used. They have no idea what this is for. 
Now, there's one particular hint as to why that is the case. In the ritual, it just says, do it. It doesn't give any explanation. And most who take a look at this particular passage say, there is something shifting in the minds of the Israelites. Because if you go back to other rituals, superstitious rituals, rituals about magic, incantations, etc., they all include this means this, the rat's whiskers means this, uh, the dung of the goat means this, you pour it all in the cauldron. I mean, that kind of image where you take all of these different elements and you put it all together comes from a place of superstition and of magic. And there's all sorts of explanations for what this means and how this is symbolized. And if you just do kind of this uh, witch in a cauldron image, if you just do these little incantations and do these little rituals, then you will somehow be healed from whatever disease or ailment or injustice that is happening in your life. And what some are suggesting is that the absence of all of those things and just the purity of it being God has told you to do these things is symbolizing a significant shift in the ancient mind. Now, I know for us in the modern world, this is going to be hard to understand. But if you were back in the ancient world, this would have been a huge step forward away from superstition and away from magic to something that we do even to this day, which is a meaningful ceremony imbued with imagery and metaphor and symbolism. It's a shift. This is huge in the history of religious ideas throughout human, uh, human time, human history. This is one of the stories that some point to to say this is a shift away from the magical incantations. Like you can put God in some sort of jar or put God in some sort of incantation, some sort of magical spell or saying and make all sorts of crazy magical things happen in this world. And they say that the absence of any of those significant things means that we're actually moving into a different kind of way of thinking about God in a way that is actually much more rational. Some would even suggest that this is going to be the foundation piece for a rational world view. This is, you're going to need a lot more reading and history behind all of that, but some are going to suggest that the beginning of the absence of superstition and the beginning of God's commandments because of logic and rationality is going to ultimately set the foundation for the future of Christianity, which is going to set the foundation for the future of science and logic and reason and all the advancements that we have today. And even though it may not seem like it now, because this is like an ancient uh, red heifer and uh, there's a ceremony and there's burning and there's ashes, the absence of all the superstitious language in this text seems to indicate there's a shift in a movement in that culture. It's really quite astounding. So the question is this, if it's a meaningful ceremony, what does it mean? What is it attempting to try to show the ancient Israelites? And then ultimately, what is it attempting to try to show us? Well, first of all, there's the ritual purity. We talked about this before. No contact with the dead. Uh, the corpse is separate. Um, and somehow the pure person, the ritually pure person, actually touches the dead body. The, the pure person, the, the priest, the, the person who's supposed to be the symbol of life, actually enters into that place where there is dead, uh, where there is death. Uh, the other symbol and ritual is that notice they went outside of the camp. 
And outside of the camp is always the location of the ostracized, the people who cannot be within the community, the people that are ritually impure, the ritually unclean, or the people that have had some sort of event in their lives. That's what that word gonorrheal persons means. Um, For those of you who have studied the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures, you know that uh, any sort of, um, how shall I say this very gently, Uh, any sort of bodily fluid activity both for male and female, is going to render you ritually impure. Because for the ancients, uh, that was a symbol of life. And if that happened, if there happens to be a discharge, I'm so sorry about this. If there happens to be that, it is a symbol that that happened, but there was no life that came out of it. So it's a symbol of death. It's a symbol of of all of that. So those people had to go outside of the camp. Anybody who was a leper, uh, anybody who had some of those issues, or anybody who was defiled had to go outside the camp. And yet, this person, the clean person, in order to help that person who's touched the dead body, goes outside of the camp. There's a lot of red. Many of you know the passage from Isaiah chapter 1. Though your sins were like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall become like wool. So the red, the symbol of the blood, as well as the crimson piece, some suggest the cedar wood itself would have had a a reddish hue to it, is all symbolism of that sin and separation and the fallenness of that particular person. And this is where it gets really wacky and exciting. I've said this multiple times. I hope you're catching it. The clean person becomes unclean through the ritual, while the unclean person or the defiled person becomes clean. Most people call this the red heifer paradox. The impure become pure, and the pure become impure. What in the world is that all about? Because normally in these rituals, there's a very clear process and separation of those things. If you were to bring a sacrifice, the priest is in the temple, is in the tabernacle, is in the holy place. And what you bring in there is already holy. And the sacrifice is for various sins and other kind of atonement work for the people. But this sacrifice, this ritual is about a mixing of those two areas, which is very distinct and very unique. So what in the world is going on here? Well, what seems to be happening, which sets the foundation for who the people are to be, when it says that you are to be holy, it seems to be that the priest, even though they are the ultimate symbol of sacred holiness, they become ritually impure in order that the person on the outside can be restored back to the community, to be redeemed, to be purified, to be cleansed, to be restored In other words, it is this ritual that sets the foundation for what the priest's job and what people who are supposed to be holy, what their responsibility actually is. Your holiness, the idea that you are set apart and sacred and special, is not just a symbolic imagery that we look at and then we fear and we keep those things separate. In this particular ritual, the holiness and the sacredness of that purity exists to bring it outside to the people who are ritually impure, to the unclean ones. It's that mixing and crossover that is happening in this ritual. And this is a profound, radical shift on what does it really mean to be holy and what does it mean to be in service of God. And it is through this ritual 
that people who are on the outside, people who are unaccepted by the community because of how they've acted, how they behaved, the things that they have touched, the things they have done, it is through this ritual that the person who symbolizes the ultimate image of purity and wholeness gets out there, takes that person's place so that that person can be lovingly restored back to the community. This is huge. What does it mean to be holy? This is what it means to be holy. If I've been given a sacred right and privilege, if I've been chosen by God, if I have uh, blessings by God, it is not because I'm so great. It is because I have now been given the commission and the responsibility to find and to look for those people who are on the outside of that. To meet them in that place. To transfer, connect with whatever it is that they are missing, however it is that has caused them to be on the outside of the community, whatever it is that have caused them to be, quote, defiled. And to take it on for myself and to give them a welcome back into this community. Do you see this? This is really, really beautiful and really, really wonderful. There is an ancient commentary that suggests that this is exactly what the entirety of the, of the Torah, of the teachings, of the law, that everything of what it's supposed to be. Be among the disciples of Aaron. Love humanity. And with that love, you will bring everyone close to Torah. And the whole idea is that as you go out and love people physically, tangibly, really love those people who are outside, who are unlovable, who are ostracized, marginalized, whoever those people are, you love them. And by loving them, you enter into their world. You get to feel what they feel, know what they know. And by doing that, you bring them close in. Does this sound familiar? Does this sound familiar of any other ancient religious teacher we know? All throughout this ministry of Jesus, he tells story after story and lives in a way where he himself, the pure one, the righteous one, the perfect one, constantly goes into places that are ritually impure, the places that are on the outside, to welcome and restore and reconcile people back into the community. Consider the uh, story of the Samaritan, yes? The priest and the Levite can't stop. And whatever your images are, many commentators would suggest that the reason why they can't stop is because they can't touch a dead body. And if they were to touch a dead body, then they would become impure and they can't go do the sacrifices. But this impure person, the Samaritan, the one who's ultimately impure, comes and enters into it. And the whole point is your holiness, your holiness, your holiness is supposed to reach down into that particular moment. Somebody who's been beaten, bruised, and left off to the side to restore them. Consider the woman with the issue of blood in, uh, in the Gospels, who had been suffering for 12 years, rendering her completely ritually impure. The, the ultimate symbol of death, the ultimate person who really should be on the outside and who was, and who many say absolutely was on the outside because of how she was, her, her mere biology or whatever that was, and she was just absolutely left. And what happens when she comes up and touches? She feels 
She feels something be restored to her, and Jesus feels power leave his body. The pure has become impure through the connection and the touch. Uh, Consider this story in in Luke chapter 7. Mary, uh, Jesus is at a Pharisee's house. And the Pharisees, of course, are very uh, austere people. They're the righteous people. They're the holy people, right? They have everything together. They know how the law is supposed to be. They know how it's supposed to be uh, behaved and obeyed. And so they're doing that. And Jesus welcomed them in. And then this woman with an alabaster jar comes in of ill repute. And she begins to pour this oil on his feet, wets Jesus' feet with her tears, begins to wipe his feet with her hair. And then this comment from one of the Pharisees that were around there. If this man was a holy man, he would know what kind of woman she is. And then Simon, in what I can only imagine is like a teacher voice, goes, Simon, I have something to tell you. And then gives him the message. Look, he who has been uh, forgiven much loves much. And there's this crossing over. The separation that the religious people wanted, Jesus welcomes in leaves, goes. Um, Jesus actually tells a story about something that was dedicated and sacred and holy to the temple, the consecrated bread uh, that's supposed to be in there. Uh, and the disciples are picking grain on the Sabbath and, and they're like, why are you doing that? That's supposed to be holy. That's supposed to be sacred. But they were picking it because they were hungry. And Jesus tells them the story. Don't you remember? David, at one particular point, when there was uh, hunger and a need went into the sacred temple and ate the bread because there was a hunger and there was a need. Even though there was a separation of that which was supposed to be holy, there was a collapse of that, the the welcoming in of that which is holy to restore somebody back to the community. You know the story. uh, You've heard the phrase tax collectors and sinners. And it's just constantly throughout Jesus's ministry. You see this movement of going outside to become impure, to take on whatever reputation, whatever impurity, whatever ostracization those people had, Jesus took on for himself in order that they could be welcomed back in. He was the one who became ashamed and ridiculed and dismissed, mocked, criticized, and ultimately crucified so that we could be brought in. This paradox of the red heifer is an astounding statement on what holiness and righteousness is supposed to be. In the minds of many religious people, holiness and righteousness is there because of some sort of specialness, never to be touched. It is supposed to be revered, honored, feared. But this story and the movement of Jesus suggests that holiness exists to go actually outside of it, to bring in the people who are on the outside. Many of you know this passage from 2 Corinthians chapter 5. So if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation rather than the old dungy one. Everything is old. Everything old has passed away. Everything has become new. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. Since God is making his appeal through us, we entreat you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. So that, that's the key phrase, so that, in him, we who are by implicit nature, the sinful ones, the rotten ones, the defiled ones, the unclean ones, the ones who are on the outside, we can become the righteousness of God. This, my friends, is a fulfillment, right in line with the idea of the paradox of the red heifer. 
Um, and it ultimately is because that is who Jesus is and how he models. So this is what it means to be holy. And this is what I think this story is telling us and provoking us to consider. Becoming defiled and unclean in order to bring redemption is itself a sacred And to sit in a church or to be a part of a religious community and to think that this is we're supposed to protect this may ultimately miss what this is supposed to ultimately be about. Perhaps put another way, entering into another person's outsidedness in order to bring redemption is itself a sacred act. This is what Jesus did. This is what the paradox of the red heifer is all about, to enter into somebody else's outsidedness in order to bring redemption and reconciliation. Being willing to become the chastised, the hated, the marginalized, so that the chastised, hated, and marginalized can be redeemed is itself a sacred act. When you associate and affiliate with the people who are hated, when you associate and affiliate with the people who are on the outside, guess what people are going to say about you? Yeah, you become that in order to bring people in. And I would suggest to you that protecting holiness then becomes a sin when it ceases to actually redeem. If we do religious institutions and have religious things and religious ideas and uh, religious artifacts, and the whole point is to protect those rather than use them to redeem those who are on the outside, I would suggest to you that that may be the very essence of what sin is. I really wanted to show you this clip from Les Miserables because it just so sums it up, but I've shown it like 50 times here. Go watch it again because it is, once again, a symbol of that which was holy, going outside, giving the candlesticks, the thing that belonged to the priest, giving it outside, defiling, giving it to a robber, somebody who's on the outside, somebody who's a thief, in order to bring that person in. And I've heard multiple stories where the communion, the wine, the bread, the sacredness of of this holy moment that we're supposed to have was defiled, was treated as sacrilegious because somebody who was on the outside was hungry and needed something to eat. And that would have been a perfect example of the holy thing reaching to the outside to bring in those who are on the outside, to bring reconciliation and restoration back to the community. And that means taking the holy person, putting them outside, performing the ritual, then they take on the uncleanness themselves so that the unclean person can be brought back in. So my friends, two major moves in this very perplexing and mysterious passage One is a move away from superstition and magic to one of thoughtful, rational, logical connection with God in a meaningful ceremony that transforms what we ultimately think about holiness, sacred spaces, separateness, outsideness, uncleanness. And many of you in this room, I know, have been unfriended on Facebook because you went to the outside and somebody saw you and said, wait, you're doing that? Bye-bye. Oh, you then took on the uncleanness of that in order to stand up for those who are on the outside. And that, my friends, is a purple cow. 
That is astounding. That is what stands out and is remarkable. When religious people, holy people, set aside their right to be holy, their position of religious austereness, to get dirty, to go to the outside, to become affiliated with those who are despised, to befriend those who other people hate so that they could be brought back into the community, so that they could be reconciled. And not only do we see this in the paradox of the red cow, the red heifer, we see this all throughout the ministry of Jesus. That, my friends, is a purple cow. So the red cow, the red heifer, is, in my mind, actually purple. That's what's remarkable. And for those of us who are studying numbers, we do so because this was the Bible that Jesus read. And our ultimate mission is to inspire all of us to try to actually live in that way of Jesus, to go to the outsides, to go to the margins, to go to the people who, who themselves are on the outside. Become associated and affiliated so that there can be reconciliation. That's what we use our holiness and our righteousness for. So thanks to my team for helping to illustrate that. Okay, God, help us to do this and be this and to understand more and more what it means to be holy in this particular way to go outside to bring people in. Thank you for telling these stories. Thank you for passing them down. Uh, And thank you, Jesus, for living this way and modeling it in a way that helps us to live it here and now. A lesson and a paradox that is so needed and relevant still as there are many people in our communities who are still on the outside. May we bring them in. May we defile ourselves so that others can be fully brought in to the community and be restored to your family. And I pray in your name. Amen.